This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Glanville. Mike Trott is coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Welcome to Starkville, part of the Athletic Baseball Show presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. So, you know, I want to welcome in the invisible Jason Stark, who actually is not here this week. <laughs> so Jason Stark is taking a, well, taking a well-earned vacation. And, you know, that man works harder than anybody on the planet. Uh, but as a result of his uh, absence, I will rename Starkville to Vil Stark, and we're going to have to flip the name, uh, you know, because he's going to lose those rights. I haven't decided what I'm going to charge him for coming back to Starkville. Maybe it'll be like he has to enter by getting, answering a trivia question. Uh, we're going to work on that, but Jason Stark will not be with us today. However, we will have the incredible Susan Waldman. Uh, you know, she's done so much in the Yankee world of broadcasting in, a, in her pioneering efforts and has so many interesting uh, information, takes, insights on the game of baseball, Yankees, but also just being a pioneer in her own right by her breaking down barriers as a woman in baseball and in sports. So I'm excited to hear her comments and I'm looking forward to discussing the game with her. Uh, now, one thing that's been on my mind as the week has, has passed, is Shohei Otani. The All-Star game was you know, incredible, just being able to see these tremendously young, talented players. But Shohei Otani still is where all the eyes are on. He is the, he is the centerpiece. And, you know, and there was some discussion or conversation or comments made uh, recently in the past week about whether he can be the face of the game, the face of the sport. Uh, I, you know, I, and I found that problematic at, at the best and also something that deeply bothered me to even consider that that wouldn't be possible. And, and I guess here's how I'm thinking about it. You know, Otani has come on the scene and created awe. And it's not just for fans, but it's also for major league players that compete with him and against him. And when I was playing in the big leagues, you still had that feeling that you wanted to keep as being a child in the game. You still wanted to have that innocence and that appreciation so that any moment could come and could reduce you to something where you're back when you're seven years old. Otani just has that kind of magic. And magic knows no language, no voice, no face. It, it transcends. And when you're as talented as he is, to combine with the fact that he's changing the game by just being able to dominate on both sides of the ball as a pitcher and a hitter, you start to think about what awe is really about. And, and when I reflect on my career particularly, I played in the heart of the steroid era. And that was a time where the game lost so much integrity, lost so much fidelity, lost so much credibility, especially as we were able to understand the, the depths of it and, and looking back and reflecting. And what it also stole, and particularly even the players on the field, was this sense of awe 
because you lost this ability to say that what they were doing was authentic, that it was real and it was human. And when I think of the story of, some, of Superman, for example, you think of someone that you admire his superpowers. Yeah, that's exciting. But it's also the fact that he grapples with his own humanity and wanting to be human and finding love and making these connections. And what that allows us to see is that you can inspire people by pointing them to their own humanity, that you don't have to artificially create something supreme, because in fact, that actually cheats people of the power to think that we can do these great things as what we have to what we're bringing to the table and who we are. And that's the best of fair competition. You know, we're born with whatever, we outwork someone, we work hard, we get opportunity, we develop it and we do it honestly. And then we you know, find out who the best is on a given day. And baseball allows you to live to fight another day. So there was immense greed at the center of this to say, you know, I just want to cut through all the chase. And as my dad would say with his Trinidadian accent, the phrase he used to say is shortcuts lead to long cuts. So we've had a lot of long cuts come at us as the game with all the questions outside of the sign stealing and sticky substances, but PEDs were uh, sort of the more recent crisis that is still plaguing us today. And so Otani, for me as a fan, has brought back the sense of being odd. And and that's something that I missed, this, this lack of question that I w- would have going into my professional career that all of a sudden became a big question because I wasn't sure who I was competing against, who I'm competing with even. I'm losing jobs to people that are cheating and cutting corners and um, you know, aging out and competing with guys in free agency at the same position that are taking this extra advantage. So that is very disillusioning. And, and although I loved the game, I still walked away as a skeptic, questioning everything. And so that is my hope for Otani. And when you have this transcending type of figure, it retires all these sort of artificial constructs we create about, you know, boxes we put ourselves in. Uh, Baseball is not owned by America. It's not owned by, you know, one group of people. It's not owned by English either. This is an international game and the face can be anything and anyone and any time. And maybe to some degrees, the more we learn about our common threads, our common humanity, maybe we're not worried about the face and we're just worried about someone who has the power to awe. And so Otani is someone that when I look back at my career, I've played with so many players that didn't necessarily have a command of English or anything, but the moments I remember are, are played almost like a silent movie. They, nobody had to say anything. Baseball has signs and communication is often throughout. It's unwritten. You have all kinds of ways we communicate the game and its memory and its history without having to you know, speak anything, without any spoken word. It's nonverbal in many respects. Just like I played with Curtis Pride in the Arizona Fall League, who's deaf. And he still was able to do amazing, amazing things, not only on the baseball field, but on the basketball court. So I hope we are able to retire the sense of who gets to be the face. As we look forward to this week, there's a pioneering broadcasting team of all women. And the more we get away from this sense of like who gets to love the game and express the game, the more we'll embrace its true greatness, that it is meant for everyone. And that, to me, is better for not only the future of the game, but also for a larger society and our, and our humanity that's shared, because we can actually all come together on the same field. So Shohei Otani, I'm rooting for you, and uh, I will continue to watch your every move. But thank you for reminding me of why I fell in love with the game in the first place. 
Well, very honored to welcome in to Starkville, the town, the place, Susan Waldman. Uh, it's a great honor to have her uh, share her insights today on all things baseball, a pioneer in her own right, uh, a voice of the Yankees, and has a Broadway voice to go with it. <laughs> so, so Susan, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you. I would never say no to you, Mr. Blanville, <laughs> not in a million years. <laughs> well, just, just thinking about, I mean, I, I threw the word pioneer out, but I'm curious to hear, you know, sort of your journey and how you see the different moments and milestones that led you to, to this place, to, to be the voice. Um, you know, what has it been like and, and what has been those sort of circles on the calendar that kind of kept you pointing in this direction? Well, here's the interesting thing is that this all started and um, to go through 35 years of what, you know, someone went through. Um, I, one, I had another career, as you just talked. I was on Broadway and did musicals for you know 15 years. I did nightclubs and everything. Um, I also at the same time, you know, growing up and I grew up in Boston. And I had my own season ticket to Fenway Park when I was three. That was the 50s. So um, little girls didn't do anything except take ballet lessons and do, you know, and I went with my grandfather too. And I love sports. And I sat there and I could literally um, reach out and touch pet Ted Williams, which I, I did many times. I knew him from the time I was four until he died. You know, to a little context, um, first row right next to the on deck circle, there's the dugout right there. I was a little cutie at four. And you'd go in and there was no one there. This is not Fenway now. This was not Red Sox Nation. This was <laughs> 500 people in the park. And you'd go and I'd stick my little head in. And, you know, Johnny Pesky was one of those. So this is early 50s, which means I'm old. So Pioneer goes with that. And, you know, I just was part of it. I just loved it. And I called Johnny Pesky, Uncle Johnny till the day he died. And, you know, I was grown up in two different careers. Um, but you never thought of somebody said, did you ever think of doing this? I doing what? I mean, I was going to go to Broadway and I was going to sing and I was going to be a star and all that stuff. I worked, but I was never what I thought I was going to be. Um, I, and the music was changing. And I knew that the Broadway that I was coming to New York to do was gone. It wasn't coming back. I better find something else to do. Um, how I, how I started to think about this was when I was on the road and I was on the road with a uh, two-year production with Richard Kiley of Man of La Mancha and, um, we never did matinees and what I would do was go to the ball games in whatever city I was in and how I would do that was call up. This is the seventies. Nobody thought it was a way to get on television. I would call up and I'd say, hi, this is Susan Waldman. I'm starring in Man of La Mancha. Do you need an anthem singer? And usually I'd get dead silence because no one ever did that. And pe and now people, it's a way to get on television. I just wanted to go to the ball game, <laughs> And it was a big deal back then. They would send a car, every place, send a car. I'd have lunch with the owners. And um, it was uh, amazing. And it was 1979. I sang in... Um, the playoffs and World Series in Pittsburgh, because we were in Pittsburgh for two months, the We Are Family team. Um, and I sang everywhere. And it was just wonderful. And I'll tell you, um, May, I think it was, of 79, I was singing in Minnesota. I was doing La Mancha in Minnesota. And um, the Red Sox were in town. And the head of PR said, Miss Waldman, I bet you'd like to go to the dugout and meet your team. You know, your team. Yeah, it's it's 79. I'm still in theater. I'm still a Red Sox fan. And I'm down in the dugout. And there's Fisk and Hobson and Rice and Lynn. And they're all there. And I'm sitting there with my little Red Sox cap on. And I'm talking to Jim Rice. 
and he had said something about how he had not seen a fastball the first two months. He was had a great year, obviously, 78. And I said to him, I said, so you're telling me you're hitting 315 by accident. <laughs> and he started laughing, but there was someone in back of me. And it was someone who I'd never met before and have never seen again, and he changed my life. It was Wes Parker, who was the first baseman of the Dodgers, who was doing the game with Joe Garagiola. And he said he wanted to talk to me because he was going to see Man of La Mancha that night, and he was going to be an actor. Remember, he was in Brady Bunch and all that stuff. And, and, and I turned around and I, he introduced himself to me and he said, have you ever thought of doing this for a living? And I said, doing what for a living? And he said, well, you just got Jim Rice to tell you that he hasn't had a fastball in two months and you're making fun of him doing that. And I said, yeah, that's very nice. And we started talking about acting. But it, it must have stuck in my head for some reason. I never seen him again. I've never seen him again. But I owe this in some way to Wes Parker. Um, anyway, so he did come to see La Mancha and that was fine. And then I kept doing that and doing that. And um you know, it just and in 1986, I had done a couple more Broadway shows. The voice of the Boston Red Sox at the time, Ken Coleman, uh, who was one of my best friends, said, you know, I know this guy. He's 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 putting on this new thing. They're starting this thing in New York, W Fan or something. They're going to start it next year. They got to have a woman because it's the law. He's got to meet you. I said, okay. And I went and he said, can you get me a tape? And I said, oh, sure. And then I called some radio friends and said, what's a tape? What, are, what am I doing? Go make. So I went into a studio with a guy who was doing overnights in some station. And I put together a phony sports broadcast because I was always very sarcastic. And the way I talk is the way I talk. And, and um, I went and I got my little cassette and I put it on the guy's desk. And they hired me to do updates it, on starting in 1987, because mainly they had to have a woman on the air. I mean, it's New York City, you have to have a female. Um, so that's long and short of it, getting there. Um, once I got on the air, the first day, the first thing I heard after my first update was, get that smart-ass bitch with the Boston accent off of my air in prime time. And I was doing updates, and the talk show host at the time was Jim Lampley. And I just looked at him. My eyes were like wide open. And he said, just keep going, just keep going. And then, um, you know, I was already, I had just turned 40. So it's stunning to be 40 and realize that you are hated on sight or when you open your mouth because you're female. And immediately they wanted to transfer me and fire me. And, and I said, no, you're not doing that. I have a guaranteed contract. So they tried to make me quit. And then I realized what it was going to be like to be a female in sports. And quite frankly, Doug, if I had been 20 and not 40, I probably would have left because I it's it was horrible. And, um, you know, besides the things that you've all heard, I mean, the feces in the mail and the used condoms and um, I had my own cop at Yankee Stadium, the whole, de a whole detail in 1989, because someone was literally trying to kill me. And can you imagine? Right. Imagine somebody wanted me dead because I was female and talked about the Yankees with a Boston accent. Um, it was, it was, <clears throat> got really terrible. But it's, you know, do you think it, do I think it's changed? Well, nobody's trying to kill me. Not that I know, but, you know, we haven't, we haven't come all that far, I think. So. And so, and what was, what gave you the power to, for one, endure, and also see some sort of future where maybe it would change, even if it's not in your time or, you know, what what gave you that vision or that hope? Or do you well, have it? Do you have it? <laughs> I, well, I don't know that it's power. 
Um, I have never in my life been told no um, and not understood the reason. I mean, when you're in theater, no, Susan, you're too fat. You're too old. You, I don't like the voice. You're too, you know, too belty, too soprano. And you gave you a reason. But this was because I was a female. I mean, I come from, my mother was an extremely strong woman. The women that I know, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to know about, about sports. I mean, my mother knew, my aunts knew. I always tell that when I sat in Fenway Park, Cardinal Cushing used to bring the nuns. I, they knew everything. I didn't know I was not supposed to know. I didn't like that. There was no reason for it. Why would I be hated on site because I was female? I, I didn't like it. Um, you're also, you know, you learn this in Sunday school. You're supposed to leave this world a better place than when you found it. I was going to try because, you know, and it's taken a long time. And now I see it's three generations ago when I was by myself doing this with all the terrible stories that you do know. That's a long time ago. The young women that are out there now are in their 20s. They could be my grandkids. Mm. So it took all this time, but I'm trying to, I'm seeing a little, <laughs> a little fruit of it. And it's not trying to do anything. I just didn't understand. No, for no reason. Now, why? You think I'm an idiot because I walk in a room and I'm female? You think I, you, we're not transplanting a kidney here. You think I can't analyze a swing because I've never done it? I can see. It's, um, it's, a, it's, a strange, it's a strange thing. I, it's changed a little. I'm not quite sure it's where it should be. Yeah, and, I, and I love what you reminded us of when I interviewed you for a New York Times article a few years ago about Jessica Mendoza in particular. And you said a lot of guys call in and say and think that they know more about the game than I do, comma, they don't. Uh, can, right. Right, can, and can, you, can you speak to that of, first of all, your incredible preparation, your just passion for the game and your knowledge and how you just go about your business uh, just because you want excellence? Well, I think the wanting excellence is the important is the important thing, and that's I, either you have that or you don't. And I think, um, you know, in in what I did for a living in theater, you've got to be <laughs> really precise. You've got to be prepared. Um, I found out that being a female in this game, you have to be over prepared, and usually. Um, you know, I've been preparing for this since I was a little girl. I, I've always said you can't come late to baseball because baseball to me, and now it's changing and now they don't care what I say. But to me, it's stories. It's that I can talk about you and how you got there and who was that. And everybody is connected. And to me, that was always an, an important person, an important part of, of what I did, because that's what it is. Everyone I know can remember the first game they went to, who was playing, how old they were, and who they were with. Every person, I've never met anyone who is a, is a fan who, and I've also thought that people that love this game, there is a broadcaster in their background. There is usually a radio broadcaster that became part of their life. And if it's just cookie cutter and no emotion, you don't get hooked in. Your heart has to belong to somebody. And I bet you can name who it was for you. Everybody can. There's someone who, that, that's my family. That's part of it. And that's baseball. You don't have that with football. You don't have that with basketball. We had it sort of with Johnny Most, but that was, you know what I mean? Yeah. But that's way back. Now they could be anybody. It could be anybody. Uh, it's not what baseball is. It's connection. 
Um, if you don't know, for example, you took, somebody calls and tells me they're a big Yankee fan. If you don't know who the catcher was that put his airplane down on Route 5 in San Diego, I don't want to know you. I mean, that's exactly, you know, it's those kinds of things. And yes, it happened a long time ago. But if you're a fan, no matter if you're 10 or 11, your dad told you or your grandfather told you that Matt Noakes put his plane down in the middle of the highway. I mean, everybody knows that. And those are those kinds of stories. And that's what you get out of a radio broadcast. And that's what, um, like, like Jessica has that. It's not, you know, it's that love of the game. And it's, you know, she's, she, she played so she can analyze better than I can. Not that it's, I could do it, but, you know, it sounds silly coming out of me. You know, it's, it's, it's better. You can see it. I can, what I loved is, you know, I was talking to Kevin Long and he told me, so let's see if he does it. And that sometimes is better because it bring. I'm not preaching. I'm bringing the listener in and seeing if it happens. And then it's why didn't it happen? And I'm afraid that that's going away. And that's what that's what I do is try and bring the humanity. I don't like all the that everybody is a stat and they're all interchangeable because, you know, you're you're a wonderful player. You're not like the guy who played next to you. There's a story. There's a person there. And I think that fans are better, better people when they know the story. And I see that disappearing, which is why you're seeing a lot of bad things happen at the stadiums now, because they're not people anymore. Well, Susan, you're in the right place in Starkville because we, we live on story. <laughs> so. Well, I, I know. <laughs> but um you know you know I, I think about one story that you shared with me and i know you mentioned it's um you know been out there but it, it relates to the villain ally kind of relationship so there's george bell and there's jesse barfield and and they both serve the critical role in a, in a moment to kind of frame okay where can i go with this and who's going to be kind of with me or who's going to be against me and is how this is going to go forward can you, can you share that story with us? Sure. Um, this is September of 1987, my first year on the beat. Now, before we get to this, let me make it really clear. The New York Yankees were full of, <laughs> Don Mattingly was in that locker room, Dave Rigetti, Mike Pagliarulo, Ron Guidry. My first friend on that team was Ricky Henderson. Uh, Dave Winfield was in there. They're not going to spit at me and do all this stuff. Other clubhouses weren't like that. Mm. Okay, so the Toronto Blue Jays, let me preface this with um, that year, I sat in the press box that entire year, that half year when the FAN went on the air and nobody talked to me, nobody. Um, the writers did not talk to me. I, they said terrible things. It was just an awful, awful time. It was gonna get worse, but I thought that was pretty bad. Um, in September of 87, the uh, Toronto Blue Jays came to town for an afternoon game and then they were going to Baltimore. Toronto was in competition with Detroit for the, um, the pennant then, it was September. And that year, George Bell had not talked to the New York writers all year because he thought that the New York writers in voting for Mattingly the year before cost him the MVP. So he wouldn't talk to anybody. So we're in September. And what I used to do, Doug, <laughs> I used to take media guides and I'd look and see where guys went to school. And I'm saying, Toronto, that was a tough clubhouse. That was a tough one back then. All right. The wonderful, late, wonderful 
my friend John Cerruti was in that. He went to Amherst. We have both have a degree in economics. He's not going to yell at me. Jeff, Mus- Jeff Musselman was in that clubhouse. He went to Harvard. He's not going to yell at me. I did that with football, too, and, and basketball. I'd look to see where they went to school. And you'd know anyone who went to North Carolina, you could talk to them. They were taught. That's right. Anyone who went to Notre Dame, all my linemen on the Jets that went to Notre Bob Crable was my guy. He went to Notre Dame. But I did that, and I was talking to I introduced myself to Saruti and Musselman, who, by the way, lockered next to each other. What a surprise. And um, I was talking to them, and I see a crowd go to George Bell. And I said, sorry, I guess I got to go. I guess he's going to talk. And so I go over, and he sees me and starts screaming i mean screaming vicious horrible things about females and both spanish and english and um clubhouse guys are running into the back and the place was silent and i hear get her the f out of this clubhouse i'm not going to talk to anybody and it's like it stopped it was like i was in a movie and everyone was staring at me and no one said a word and so i just said to myself all right just let me get out of here before i start to cry i just and i walked to the i mean it seemed like i was walking for an hour and a half by myself it was dead silence and um and i almost got there and i hear what's her name and a writer said i don't know it's susan something and i hear susan and I turned around and it was Jesse Barfield. And he said, I want three for four today. Don't you want to talk to me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I did. And I turned around and he was writing poems about going to Baltimore and what we're going to do. And um, and that was the a most incredible act of, I'd never met him, never met him. And he just, he just did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marla and Jesse Barfield had been friends of mine now for almost 35 years. I mean, they're like family to me. But imagine my delight when he was traded to the New York Yankees two years later. Um, But that's what I found in sports. Um, A lot of cruelty, a lot of kindness, and not a lot in between. And it was Jesse, and that became actually a chapter in a a children's book about um, what you do. And it turned out, um, you know, talk about your childhood. Jesse's aunt used to take him to Wrigley Field and he adored Ernie Banks. And the aunt taught Jesse about Ernie Banks and what happens in this world and why you have to be kind to people that are different from you and just, you know, whatever. And he just did that. He didn't know me. I was two steps and I was out the door. It never would have happened. But it changes you. Um, you know, I talk about that. Dave Winfield had one of those moments with me, and I don't talk about this a lot because he gets embarrassed, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, he had been in a terrible slump, and Ricky was out, and Willie Randolph was out, one and two, and he had an awful slump. And then they came back, and he and I said, this is why? This is why? Look who's on base every day. And he was you know, three, four, five, and yada, yada. And so I go to him and I had never asked a question in the Yankee locker room. This was early, this is July something. And um, I'm standing there with this big thing, but I have all my stats, I have all my reasoning. And the, the other tape recorder people, stringers, they called them then, didn't want me there because they thought I was taking a job away from what they called a real reporter, meaning male. And um, I started to ask a question, Dave, and I started to do that and I made a mistake. Hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, do I keep going um, and not be able to use the tape or do I stop, start again and have everybody laugh at me? As I was running this over in my head, I see Dave Winfield press on my tape recorder, stop. 
And he said, you know, I didn't like the way I answered the last question that you've recorded. Can we start again? Hmm. He heard it and he, so I did. I, you don't forget that. You don't forget stuff like that. There were people like that in every clubhouse, but they were few and far between. Or I used to say to the wonderful, she's now, she's long retired from this business, Susan Fornoff, who covered the A's. She was the one that Dave Kingman sent the rat to. Yep. Um, the only time we were ever totally comfortable is when the A's were playing the Yankees because she was there every day and I was there every day and they were used to seeing a, a female. And so that was the only time it was not an, it was not an easy time. Um, it started to change. I think I started to become, um, I think I was taken, uh, taken seriously for the first time because of the San Francisco earthquake. Hmm. I was in the upper deck and it was October, 1989. And I was on the, on the air. And for some reason, um, my phone and the guy next to me, a Chicago <laughs> reporter named Les Grobstein. Oh, yeah. He was next I to know me. Les. Oh, yeah. Les, ask Les to show Next time you see him, ask him to show you the, the nail marks that he still has in his arm <laughs> from me grabbing. But there were two phones in the entire stadium that did not go out, mine and Les's. Oh, wow. And I stayed on the air, but I'm grabbing onto him. They cut from him, but I'm grabbing onto him. And he always talks about that. He says he's got the nail marks from when, but I kept talking. I kept going and I did the whole thing and described the whole thing and the wind socks going. And I stayed there and I did city side for a few days. I, um, I hitchhiked out to the Nimitz where the freeway fell off. See, it's all connections. Out there, I met a guy named Dave Stewart, who was bringing a generator in so that the cops could have coffee. Mm. And I stayed there, introduced myself, and that's how I became friends with Dave Stewart. I mean, it all is, it's all so connected. It's, it's amazing. If you just keep going, there's going to be someone who's going to help you. There just is, because that's what you're supposed to do in this world. And you find them. If you put yourself out there, I didn't go home. I stayed there. I helped people in um, shops put, you know, there was a little place I used to get um, espresso in the morning. It was a French woman and she had a little tiny shop on Minetta Lane, I think it was called, or something M, right in near the Hyatt. And all her china was all smashed. And I remember helping her. You're supposed to help people and talked about her. And she talking about how she came, our family came over from France. And she always wanted to have a little espresso place in San Francisco and how she loved it. And I stayed there for the two weeks and watched the city put their lives back together. Took the BART back and forth. <laughs> um, to You know, and, and the A's were a big, big part of that, too. So, but it's, it's keeping going because you have to, not because... You know, you have to want to do that. I didn't want to go home. A lot of the guys went home. I didn't go home. And that's the first time anybody took me seriously when I stayed there. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. And, and you mentioned this sort of flowing river of time, right? And it's coming together. I mean, what what have you seen since that time to today's player? Like, you know, sort of the evolution of how the games, as you mentioned, either covered or just the relationships with these players. Uh, you know, take me to 2021. How does, how does it shift and what have you seen? Um, it's shifted almost dramatically. Um, the first... The first uh, World Series I ever carved for the Yankees, 1996. Um, we were family. We were family. I've been flying on that charter since 1988. George tested me to see. <laughs> You'd love this story. You'll love this story. Billy Martin was the manager. Really <laughs> George, I can't. I can't do this anymore. I can't get. You know, I can't go to commercial flights and get up and. And he said, "All right, I got a question for you." Billy and Dave Forgetti get in a fight on the plane. Does it get on the air? And I said, does he break Forgetti's arm? And they're just, no, no, nobody gets hurt. And I said, well, then nobody knows. And he said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, what if he breaks his arm? And I said, well, then it's gonna, everyone's going to know as soon as he gets off the plane. So, of course, I'm going to put it on. And he said, okay, but if he doesn't get hurt, you wouldn't tell anybody. And I said, no. He said, okay, you're on. I mean, that was the whole thing. If it has nothing to do with the game, what do I care what they do? Destroy the seats? I don't care what they do. Um, it is, I think, really the advent of social media has changed it so much. Um, guys, I watched as certain players would be afraid when someone would take a picture and, you know, because it would end up somewhere. And I watched it change. Um, the last... You know, we were family for a very long time. You were you were part of it. You'd sit and you'd have the champagne, you know, with them. In '89, that that um, that championship year for Oakland, you know, I was there and I sat with Ricky and his mother, and they gave me some champagne. I mean, you were it, it was part of it. I I don't see that now. They don't want it, and it's it's too bad because I think the humanity gets lost. And that's, that's what I'm afraid of. It's a players now. I think they think they can do it themselves. Yeah, they can't, you know, there's always a reason why someone fails. If I know the reason I can say it, if I don't know the reason, but all you see is stats and all you hear is excuses from a player, it changes everything. I just think it's, it's changed. I, I can see it's changed. It's not going back. It's really too bad. And if, if for a lot of reasons, it's really too bad. And, and Susan, the thing I think about is Harry Callis at the back of the plane when I was with the Phillies. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I learned very quickly that, of course, he was the voice and, he, and I loved his voice and I heard him call games. But I started to understand the different part of how he was a teammate. And it was the mm-hmm. connection, not only to the fans, but to the stories. It was, you know, a sense of history. I could ask him, I love the 80 Phillies, right? So I talked to him about, you know, what Mike Schmidt was like and, and all that. And just how, you know, they were historians. Uh, and I think that that is, when you lose that, you lose context, right? And you do become very sort of self-absorbed in a sense of like, you know, this time is the only time. And uh, and I know, and, and one story we had with Harry Callis is, 
there is a supposed incident where some information from the back of the plane ended up on air. So to your point, and I think a player was stretching in the locker room in Veteran Stadium. He was watching the telecast and he heard something that he thought was privileged information. It led to literally a mutiny internally. And ultimately, Larry Bow is our manager. It turned into a vote or some sort. And of getting him off the right, plane. Off, I, don't, I don't even know this story. Right. And I know where you know where it's going, the back of the plane. And but the, the, the amazing thing is you kind of had two factions. One was like, there's no way, even if Harry wasn't part of this directly, can you kick him out of the plane or move him from the back? There's just no way. And then there was another faction, more of a modern sensibility was more like, hey, you know, he has to go. And I've played on all these other teams and I've never had an announcer in the back of the plane. And that, that, that is that cannot be true. There is not one radio or not. You cannot do 162 games and not fly on the chain charter. Whoever said that was lying yes. because there is not a radio announcer right. in this game who doesn't go. Right. On no, the but, chain it, but it was the back. Possible. But it was the back of the plane. That was the distinction because, you know, because you have the oh, you know, you have first class. So it was like, <laughs> yeah, that. so kick them out of the back. So you but but Harry was crestfallen is an understatement. I mean. Near tears, just so upset, and he referenced the generational shift, and and that was my era, you know, up to two thousand four, and and so I knew, you know, certainly in that moment before, it's like how I mean, and it, it tore, it really did tear our team apart. To Larry Boa's credit, he came in and said, "Look, this is eating our team alive. I got to just make a decision." So, and he ultimately said, "I'm going to temporarily remove him, and then I'm going to put him back. I'm not going to tell them that." <laughs> And it, it it actually worked out, but it was it was so devastating to Harry. Uh, it's a hor- it's a horrible feeling yeah. because particularly someone like Harry and someone anyone who does. I mean, this is my thirty fifth year with the New York Yankees. <laughs> I've spent thirty five years reporting, broadcasting TV, and seventeen now on radio. No way in hell would I ever do something like that. It, it, because it takes your credibility away. And in the first place, it's nobody's business unless it has something to do with the game. Um, and I can see that, I see that happening now, um, that the story with David Price and, De- and Dennis Eckersley, um, what he did to a guy like Dennis Eckersley in that city, um, just there is, I don't, I don't understand it. I don't understand. And by the way, a team broadcaster has to see, has to say what they think about what's going on. I don't know one broadcaster ever who has taken something in out of a plane and put it on the air that was going to hurt somebody. And I've been here a long time. I suppose there's one. I don't think there is. Usually it's somebody who's mad at somebody else and they blame it on on the broadcaster. I never did it. It's you in cuz you cuz you know, I was a really good reporter. I can find in 2 minutes who did it. You know, if you didn't do it, well who did? Well, give me 5 minutes and I'll find yeah. out. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned this, you know, whether social media it's so tough with the the speed of information. I mean, players are finding out they're getting traded on Twitter. I mean, it's know, it's it's so hard the communication. Well, speaking of which, I mean, 2021 Yankees. Okay, here we are. Um, you know, your COVID interrupted season last year uh you know what what's the state of the union i mean uh it's hard to figure out but i'm gonna let me just read you the the lineup yesterday okay and i know you know this well chris gittens uh trey ambergie rugnet ordor ryan lamar greg allen that was five six seven eight and nine right where did all the hits come from exactly six rbis (laughs) seven runs five hits one left on base and two home runs 
but it's not the identifiable Yankees that uh, right. most people are accustomed to seeing. Uh, where where are we with with the 2021 Yankees? That's that's really a really good question, and this is what I think. And I don't want to blame it totally on analytics and the arrogance of how this game has changed, but a lot of it is. Um, let me tell you what I thought was going to happen. Because um, last year everybody hit, Flavor did not hit, Gary Sanchez did not hit, John Carlos Stanton did not hit till the playoffs. Um, this is what I thought, and this was going to be the plan. You're going to have Garrett Cole, he was going to be number one. We were going to bring along Jamison Tyone, give him a few months, let him get that stuff back, um, and it'll be fine. Corey Kluber, let him get his stuff back too, and it'll be okay. They're not supposed to be great, but it's okay. They were gonna then you'd have a by June or July, they were gonna have a one, two, and three, and it was gonna be wonderful. Then you could fill in. Domingo Herman would be back, Luis Severino would be back, Davy Garcia, Triple A, Clark Schmidt would be great, and we'll all work it out. We got the back end of the bullpen, which is gonna be phenomenal, which it was, because we're gonna hit. And boy, are we going to hit. So we don't have to have great pitching yet because we're going to win seven to four, eight to five, nine to five. What happened was that nobody hit. So Jameis and Tyone became a sore spot. They never expected him to come and be the guy before the two Tommy Johnson was supposed to work out as it went. Corey Kluber did exactly what he was supposed to do. Threw his no-hitter, got hurt. We haven't seen him since. But that was, but he was not good before that either. So the plan was wrong if Judge Stanton, Sanchez, and Glaber didn't hit. Okay. Aaron Hicks was supposed to be there. Poor Brett Gardner was supposed to be a fourth outfielder, and he would have been fine. You know, come in, play defense. Clint Frazier was supposed to be in, in, in left field, or Miguel Andujar was supposed to be in, in left field. And then late in the game, Brett could come in. All of a sudden, Aaron Hicks is gone. Gone for the year. So he's never there. Judge is the only one left. Frazier's hurt. Andujar's hurt. Frazier didn't hit. And so poor Brett Gardner has to play every day and he's going to be 38 years old. He's not supposed to be out there every day. Um, Glaber, who they think is a shortstop, I have my doubts. I know he tries really hard. He was perfectly wonderful at second base, hit 38 home runs. It was going to be wonderful. And, you know, DJ can play first. He's a better first baseman than anybody else that's on this team. Uh, you have your third baseman and they could have had, they could have kept Didi. They could have um, had Andrelton Simmons. There were 1,001-year shortstops out there, but no, analytics says that Glaber is a really good shortstop. Um, but Glaber didn't hit, and Sanchez didn't hit, and nobody hit, and that was the problem. So here we are, and we keep thinking, you know, they get Rogi Rogi Ardor was supposed to be a guy off the bench to come in, give energy, which he does, and hit home runs into the short right field porch. He does. But he's not supposed to be a starting second baseman. They released him from Texas because he wasn't a starting, you know, he's only 27 years old, but he's got energy and fire and you just love him. But he's put in a position where he's not going to be DJ LeMahieu every day. DJ LeMahieu isn't DJ LeMahieu either yet. He's getting there. You can see it start to come. But he got off to a bad start. So their whole plan was a mess. Then, of course, Britain went down. Darren O'Day is not coming back this year. Um, Chapman was wonderful if you could get to him. Um, but now, you know, Chapman's having his problems. So it's all 
nothing is working. Nothing is working. And I'm not going to blame it on all analytics. Information is great. But sometimes, Doug, you look at it and sometimes I think they're told this is what a guy is going to throw on one and two and they stand there. And he didn't throw that on one and two because he's a human being too. He's not reading your reports. And by the way, the other team has iPads too. And it just is dry. You know, I I think it drives the fans crazy because I've covered bad teams. You know, the 1990 Yankees, you know, had the first pick of the draft. There's a reason why you have the first pick of the draft. Um, But they were, they weren't good, but they were human. And they, you knew, you know, at least it was watchable. This is, it's hard to watch. So last night, Chris, Chris Gittens, who's delightful, Trey Ambergy. I know he's been in spring training games for, <laughs> for like five years. He's never on the roster. Ryan Lamar, I mean, around, you know, he's he got went into the wall. I know that he's a hockey player, so I know he's not coming out. If he's got a broken knee, he's not coming out. And, and, you know, you watch it and you get so excited for these people because they've waited their, you know, years to get a chance here. And there they all are. And they're all together. And I And it was just fun. I mean, it's, you know, I could have had anybody a star of the game. I had Ryan Lamar as my star of the game last night. You know, it's like, you know, what a what a day for him. Stolen bases. The new kids had two. We've had 20 all year. Right. I mean, nobody, nobody runs. But you saw hit and runs. You saw somebody put down a perfect bunt. You saw action on the field. And by the way, I don't know why this happened, but the teams that win do everything. I mean, they do everything. They can move runners. They can hit and run. They executed last night a perfect hit and run. I said to John, who knew (laughs) (laughs) that that you could actually do that in a Yankee uniform? I don't mean to be flip about it, but it's like you're watching. You know, I feel sometimes like I'm I'm watching those video games Mm -hmm. because it's not they're not people. And I, I, you know, they're they're almost being told what to do and. And it's it, it bothers me. I know that the, the analytics people don't like it when I talk like that, because I, I do understand information is great. I absolutely do. And um, pitchers have told me, you know, exactly if you ask about the Repsoto machine, what it actually does. I mean, it does. I understand. I'm not a jerk. But there has to be there has to be a human element or you're taking away the best part of baseball. So you're you know, you're faced with Brian Cashman. You're Brian Cashman for a minute. And now. All this collision of reality is coming down while the clock is ticking and the trade deadline's here. Now he's been here twenty plus years now. Uh, is this? Do you? More than that, right? he's been here as long as well, I've been. Yeah, here. and you know, I guess he took over for Bob. You know, he was part of assistant GM in '96. That's a long 96, time ago. Yeah, and and he was GM two years later, like '90. Well, he was GM. Yeah, but he was he started the same year I yeah, did, so, like '86. Yeah, so you're so, so he has your tenure. Um, what? Is this the moment you say, you know what, whatever, I'm just going for it? I mean, why not? What do you do? You're on the clock now. He's on the clock. I think if they, if they, you know, they took two out of three from the Red Sox. If they do that with, well, two games with the Phillies, I think it absolutely, they have chance. I mean, I would not be surprised if they were buyers. I would not be surprised. Maybe they do go and get Joey, Joey Gallo who's the same person from the other side, but there's a lefty in the middle of that. So you don't have Judge, Stanton, 
Sanchez and Torres all together. There's a nice big lefty in the middle of that. Maybe he does that. Maybe he goes and gets Marte. I would not be surprised. I would not. I mean, Brian is not. It took a lot for him to sell off when he did the year they traded Chapman and traded Andrew Miller. I think they believe that they can still get there. I think Cashman actually believes that he can. He holds everything so close to the get best. Anything you're hearing, none of it will ever happen. It always, I mean, I've watched him work for all these years. Who knew who was coming back when he was, I remember when they made that, I remember in 2016, I do remember saying to him once in the corridor, because the Red Sox had, you know, we just saw Mookie and Jackie Bradley, and there was somebody else. In, and I remember saying to him, I'm hearing all these things. Where's our Mookie Betts? Where's our Jackie Bradley Jr.? <laughs> you know, and, and, and two minutes, there was Glaber Torres right there. And, and there's, you know, I, I would not be surprised if he, if he goes for it. Now, if between now and the end of the month, they decide that they're not going to win any games, they got four in Fenway starting on Thursday, and then they go to Tampa. So, you know, they've got a, a lot, of, lot of games. Eight games with the Red Sox in 11 days. Good time to get the Red Sox. A lot of injuries on that team. Yeah, no, it's so true. Um, well, speaking of big left-handed hitters, let, let, let's talk. You know, we, I, my whole introduction was about Shohei Otani, and I know we texted back and forth. Yep. Um, let's talk about Shohei Otani. I mean, you know, the crux of what I was saying is that uh, this 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 is someone who's transformational, right? And and just the challenges he faces that he's embraced in just whatever cultural shift and just turning it into something that is awe-inspiring. Uh, what have you seen? What's been your experience? Well, and and he's he's reminiscent. He's different from anyone I've seen, but I have seen it in other uh, other people. But Shohei, there's something about him when the Angels were in, and now at least to go and go onto the field. I can't do much in the Yankee side, but Joe Madden is my friend, and Brian Butterfield is my friend, and I was over there in the and I sat there, and I was talking to Joe Madden, and I was just watching him. I was watching Shohei because there's something about his smile that just and I watch him love this game. And Joe said something to me about first one there, first one, last one to leave, and the first guy to get an ice cream cone. <laughs> and I just saw this, and I saw how his teammates love him. He carries his own star. You know, there are some of those people that they walk out and they just carry their own star with them. They don't need to talk. They don't need to do anything. It's like great silent film actors. They smiled and you just went, oh. And I just watch him and I just was smiling and I just loved him. And he, you know, what I also loved was not the fact, and he does hit and he's wonderful. And I do know he lives right near there. And um, this is what he wants to do. He wants to be the greatest player ever. He wants to do everything. Um, he lives right near the park. He does take English shows. And by the way, I saw him give a perfect speech. I was sitting there on the dais when he was rookie of the year and gave us speech in perfect English to the entire New York, you know, group sitting there. The, the, um, but there, even if it wasn't perfect, I watched his heart. You could feel it. There's something about him. Um, and it, when he got knocked out in the first inning, when he pitched, he pitched on that mm -hmm. Wednesday. He didn't make it through the first inning. And I watched him 
walk off. He had a little smirk on his face. He stopped to give the, the hat to the umpire, gave him a little bow. And then he sort of shrugged his shoulders like, oh, well, I tried. <laughs> but it was just so, it was so wonderful. It was just, but then he played and he hit a home run. I mean, it's, he, is, he is something really special. And I have, um, I, I have seen in baseball for a lot of years the xenophobic, racist, just anti-everything that you don't recognize. And I want someone to think what it must be like. And the first time I saw it was um, Arabu. How hard it must be with no one ever to pave the way for you to come over here, not, not only not speak the language, but have no way to read signs. When we went to Tokyo, I was scared to death. Because you can't, you know, it's not like you're a Champs-Élysées, you know what that says. You're in China or Japan, you don't know where you are. You can't read numbers, you can't read letters, never mind talk. I walked around with little cards to show a taxi where I was going. Can you imagine coming here trying to be a first-class athlete, not knowing how to order in a restaurant, not knowing how to say hello? not knowing anything except fastball and slider and split and what that means. I've heard stories, Raul Mondesi, you want to go back? Raul Mondesi told me when he came to the United States from the Dominican, he was 15 or 16, Pedro Martinez was still with the Dodgers. He took him to Denny's. Why did he take him to Denny's? Because there were pictures on the menu. Pedro taught him to order off of the menu. I'll never forget Raul telling me this. So he got to see what a hamburger was, when he got to see what an omelet was. Can you imagine trying to make a living and be the best you can be and not having any idea how to talk to anybody or what's important or how to say, you know, my lock doesn't work or my water is not on? It's, I can't even imagine what that must be like. And I've watched so many people who people think, well, they're this and they're that because they won't speak English or they want someone there. They don't want to make a mistake. You can sit down and talk to um, Ichiro. I have the most unbelievable conversations with Ichiro. Won't do it in an interview. Won't. One, I think he doesn't want his translator to get fired. But I think also they don't want to make a mistake because if he makes a mistake because he misunderstands a word, it gets parsed at home. And what happens then? Um, I watched a whole thing about Gary Sanchez here. I wanted to kill the writer. Gary Sanchez, when, you, when he talks through the interpreter, is as insightful and open and honest as anyone I've ever seen. He could talk to me. And I've said things to him, and he'll say little things, won't do it with a microphone. But when you talk to him through the interpreter, he wants it right. He wants, he doesn't want to lose a nuance. He doesn't want, he wants you to understand what he's feeling and he doesn't understand how he can do that fully. Can you go in another language and give your emotion in another language? You can get the words out. It's not the same. I, I was, uh, Mariano Rivera did his first interview in English with me. It was way back, way, way back. We were in the old um, Oakland, in Oakland and he got, and he got his first win and I said, okay, it's time. You know, this is when we were all family. And he said, okay. And I'll, we were sitting at a table and he was shaking. And he said, 
I said, we talked and he was lovely. It was halting. It was wonderful. And, and I said, did you get the ball? And this is when I knew that he was going to be fine. He said, no, I didn't, but I have it right here in my heart. <laughs> and, and it was, and I said, okay, you're fine. I don't have to do it. And the other one that comes to mind and, and now then he was fine. Um, Alfonso Soriano would not talk in, in English. Michael Kay, Yankee broadcaster, and I was sitting on a bus and Michael was telling jokes and I was laughing hysterically. And I turn around and Soriano's laughing. <laughs> and I turn around and I said, you little sneak, you to me, tomorrow, we're, we're off. And there was, but I understand the reticence and they want it to be so good and why people don't understand it. I, I was so furious about the Otani thing. All you have to do is be in that man's, it shouldn't happen to anybody, but to someone who is taking the world on his shoulders and wants it and loves it. And um, I am told that in the All-Star break, um, the All-Star game, he didn't, he didn't turn down one interview, not one from anybody, from anybody. And then of course, coming back and giving away his money to the workers at, the, at, at Anaheim Stadium is, I mean, he's an astounding young man. And if you can't see it just by watching him and seeing the smile and the little smirk and the joy, that's, you don't need a language to see joy, to feel joy. People come to see him. By the way, there aren't too many of those that you'll see. The day he pitched, I personally know people that took their grandkids and their kids to that game. He didn't make it through the first inning. That's too bad. But I haven't heard that in years. Mm -hmm. You know, let's go see, you know, who? Let's go see Roger pitch. Let's go see Reggie. He's in town. Let's go see Daryl. Right. You don't hear that anymore. But people I know did that. And he is, um, well... No, he's amazing. And, and, and Susan, like so much of what I remember about my best memories uh, was, was transcended language. You know, it was just, you know, I played with Curtis Pride, you know, who was deaf. I played, you know, yep. I mean, you just think about players that, and even just the small scale, even though obviously Puerto Rico is part of the United States, I watched the kind of six American mainland players play in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And the ones that didn't know any Spanish, it was a, it was a reality check. And, and that was on it's a cool. much smaller scale. Um, I, you know, and I think that, you know, what I've, I, look, I've felt like I was a little bit cheated in the steroid era because I think it took a lot of the awe away from uh, what you thought was possible because there was this artificial creation and you lost the authenticity. And I see Otani and I feel something different, something like, you know, obviously the magic of being able to do this at a level on both sides of the ball, literally on the mound and run like the wind. I mean, it's just, it's already transformational, but it is something about how he carries it and what, and how much he wants this to be something magical. Like he, he's invested right. in it and that, you know, language, all that. I mean, think about all the nonverbal communication. We give signs, we, you know, we're, we're unwritten rules that nobody speaks about. The whole, so much of the game, it's heart and soul and tradition is folded in things that you don't even speak about. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra-flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing 
ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. When you get injured, you don't want to wait for answers and options. That's why it may be time to explore the Nano Experience, a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love. Nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano instrumentation, all through a barely there poke hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be a foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely, minimally invasive way. Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info slash the athletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, and whether Arthrex products are right for you. Post-operative management is patient-specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary. As we record today on Monday, tomorrow is the day this will be aired. It's also the day of the all-women broadcast team. Uh, Very excited. A lot of colleagues in here. Sarah Langs, Melanie Newman, Heidi Watney, Alana Rizzo, Lauren Gardner. uh, Orioles Rays on on YouTube TV. you know, what do you feel about that? What does that mean to you or just mean to the sport? Well, I, I, I love it, obviously. I mean, Melanie has worked, you know, she's been in the minor leagues. She's come up through the, the ranks. She got her chance last year with the Orioles. She's terrific. Sarah Langs is the future. She, I can, you can see it. She's very young. Every time I've seen her on TV or, or talked to her, I mean, the things she says, she's the future here. Alana has deserved this chance years ago. I don't know where everybody was. Um, here's the here's the thing that I feel about it. Yes, it's wonderful. Um, I'd feel a lot better about it if um, I hadn't been asked by 10 different people um, how I feel about it, every one of them being a male. Um, I also would feel a lot better of it if they said, we're going to do this once a week. And uh, every Wednesday, we're going to have this and we're going to do this. Uh, what what worries me, and of course, it's wonderful. It's, it's obviously great. It's going to get a great amount of attention. But the other thing is um, no one is perfect on their first game. These women have not worked with each other before. They're not going to be together. And I don't know, you know, it's not going to be, is it going to, do they have to be Bob Costas and Tony Kubek for them to get another shot? I was firmly aware for all these years as I sat in that seat, and it, it's gotten a little quieter now, but if I made a mistake and really screwed up, someone wasn't going to get a chance. Um, we, it's like in um, the women in, uh, Women's Month, whatever that is, Women's History Month, and they made a big deal, and I was always on and all that stuff. And I have a poster in my basement 
the first time I was ever honored on Women's History Month. It was March of 1990. That's a <laughs> long time ago. Yeah. And quite frankly, I'm still the only one there full time. Um, this is great if mm -hmm. it, it keeps going. Also, it's not going to be great until everyone putting this together is not male. And this is what I'm, you know, it's, it's fine that they've been, that they're going to be out in front. I love that. Is the producer a woman? Is the director a woman? Um, who decides what scene is going on? Where are we going? Mm -hmm. Is a guy doing it? Or it's, it's wonderful, but it's like the, the part of the iceberg that you could see, but the part of the iceberg that kills you is what's underneath. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, if it keeps going, of course it's wonderful. Of course it is. Do I think things have changed? Do you think change, things have changed in this country since 1960? Since other things started? You know, that's, I'm, I'm looking at it from, you know, an old person now. You know, it's terrific that it's happened, like last summer. Everything was wonderful, it happens. Some of us were there in the 60s. Mm. Yeah. Some of us tried then. Why did it take now? Why is it taken 50 years? And that's my, and I don't mean to be negative on it because it really is a positive thing, as was what happened last summer. But I can't get too excited until I see that it actually leads to something. Absolutely. Well, Does that sound too no, and, and I, I mean, and it's to your point that I, I love your quote. You said the difference, you know, between being tolerated and accepted, and I would add right. celebrated, right? I mean, recognizing that, you know, Sarah Lang's a colleague of mine, I mean, the, the joy of the sport, right? It transcends. We go back to Otani, like, doesn't matter, face, hair, or whatever, sure. you know, it's just, Voice, so, you know, that's, that's what I hope for, that, it, you know, just realize that, talking about super insightful, talented, but also people who love the game, <laughs> just straight up love the game. Alana Rizzo, a seven-time Emmy Award winner, I mean, and the list goes on. So, um, so yeah, I, I, you know, I'm hopeful that, like you said, the opportunity and I, and I relate in many ways on, as it pertains to race in some ways about, you know, wanting to see real institutional foundational change. And because that is where it's not, you know, they'll wait for you to, <laughs> to retire and then they can go back to where my joke was always, yeah, we will do this on March 30th or 31st cause April 1st is coming and you can go back to the way you were. But here's the other thing I would really love it. Um, also if um when i'm asked to go on mlb or espn it's always about a woman's issue it's always always no one ever calls and asks me about the yankees no one right. i mean because you've got guys for that um here's the other i would love it also if every time a woman got a job and trust me there are um seven of them that i know that are in the minor leagues one is going to be a star um, that they're all in the minor leagues, they're all in their 20s, they're all doing it, and they're all going to be here at some point. And then they have to realize that they're going into a pool with guys and there aren't that many jobs. But the other thing is that I would really love it if every time a woman makes some kind of quote-unquote history, it is not treated like some kind of a novelty act. I mean, isn't this... Um, you know, the first this to be, to be this, the first this to be this. All right. I mean, it, I understand. I understand it. But we haven't changed anything until the qualifier is off of there. 
Yeah, or first of many, you know, many. Like, it's like. Well, it's like right. no. I want the second. I don't. You know, I don't want everybody counting. Right, not all even counting. Time. Right, infinite. I hear you. You know, but it, it's that, that same thing. And when women are, you know, it's the bottom of the iceberg. Who who gives out the assignments? Why did of all the ten? And I was called from people all over the country. Mm-hmm. Why was not one person working on a newspaper or a TV or radio a woman? Not one. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, you change, real change, and I and I feel you yeah. on that a hundred percent. Yeah, I bet you do. <laughs> That's, yeah. Well, Susan, it has been an incredible honor and pleasure to reconnect with you today and get your insights on basically everything. I mean, the human condition, <laughs> baseball, sports, Yankees, history, all that stuff, uh, and 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 in your true form of just telling it like it is. And you're a treasure. Aww. I thank you. You inspire me. And uh, I just wish you continued success. If you want to do some more anthems, you know, whatever you want to do. <laughs> uh, yeah, but by the way, do you have any Broadway tips? What was your review of like Hamilton or? You know, I just... saw Hamilton six times. I think it's, it's one of those. Um, um, there are a few shows that have happened through history that have changed Broadway. Um, West Side Story was the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, probably Oklahoma before that, but I never saw it in 1940. I did. I was 10 when I saw West Side Story. Uh, West Side Story was the first, then um, Chorus Line, then Hamilton. It has changed. It's going to change. I saw it six times, four times on the road, uh, twice. I usually try and see it once a year because I need it. I hear and you. it's yeah, I need I need to see it and I need to see it live. See the movie if you can't get to a theater, but I need to see it live because I need to be there. Um, it's brilliant and see it's not we're not all old fashioned. Everybody said, Oh, you're gonna hate Hamilton. I sat there, I met Lynn Manuel, I could not talk. I've never seen such brilliance in my whole life. I was up on that stage talking to Christopher Jackson, who was I mean, and I knew oh, a yeah, lot of those yeah. people. I've in my life I've never seen anything like that. And since since Chorus Line, that was the last time I felt like that. So there was my review. Well, we, we share it, and and Christopher Jackson direct messaged me, so I just lost my mind. So. Oh, did he really? <laughs> yeah. I he loves now. baseball. He loves baseball. I know he does. He does the he does it more with the Mets than he does with the Yankees. But he'd come up to the booth and he told one told the head of marketing, I, I have to come up and see Miss Susan. And it's, you know he's just. Um, as charming and warm and lovely a man and as, as there could be. And by the way, not exactly an overnight success. No, you know, no. you know, you know, done eight Broadway shows before he became an, an instant star in Hamilton. Um, <laughs> it took took Lynn seven years to write Hamilton. Yeah, amazing. Doug, you are a treasure. I'm so glad that I know you. I can't even think how, how happy I am that I know you. So thank you. Thank you, Sue. Anytime. A pleasure. Anytime. I know I babble a lot. Sorry. Oh, it's great. <laughs> okay. I love it. And, uh, and enjoy your day off, the rest of your day off at least. And uh, we'll, we'll absolutely keep in touch. I'll see you soon. I hope so. Thanks, Doug. Okay, Susan. Thanks. Well, that was fantastic to hear from Susan Waldman and all her insights. Uh, just an incredible pioneer and someone that has always inspired me in my career. So I'm very thankful for her insights. Now we're at our point where we want to get into Strange But True. Strange But True. Strange But True is a little strange because it's true that Jason Stark is not here. Uh, so that is his loss. So I'm going to have to roll with my own strange world of weirdness Uh, that Jason and I both celebrate. But let's go back this past week where the Padres beat the Nationals 24-8. to 
That is not a football score. 24 runs. And these 32 combined runs was the most in a Major League Baseball game this season. And that says a lot because there's been a lot of double-digit <laughs> games that just seem to pop up on the scoreboard all the time. Now, what's notable about this one is Jake Cronenworth hit for the cycle in the first six innings, and he actually made out the first at bat, which is completely ridiculous. But that's how much this guy was like a revolving door merry-go-round every time he got up. So uh, I'm wondering, has anybody ever hit for two cycles in one game, like a double cycle? I don't, I don't know. But you look at Tommy Pham, and Tommy Pham was a triple shy of the cycle. Now, every time that, that phrase is said, somewhere Boog Shambi passes out, because it drives him crazy. A triple shy of the cycle. I'm going to say it again. So Tommy Pham was a triple shy of the cycle as Drake Jake Cronenworth actually hit for the cycle. That is a lot of cycles. I'm already thinking about doing laundry right now. Uh, by the way, Pham had five runs scored, which tied Al Martin for the franchise record. So that's a lot of runs by one person. And then he added a little extra bonus. He steals home on a double steal. So I don't know. What are they doing? But this was the most runs ever scored by the San Diego Padres. So they're breaking all kinds of things. They had their no-hitter finally. Now they score a whole lot of runs. And the Nationals and Expos as a franchise have never allowed this many runs. So I always think about 23-22, Phillies, Cubs, Wrigley Field. That was my Phillies heyday fandom. So these are good memories. But one other memory I, I have to reference. Let me take you back to September 4th, 1999. This is not a good memory. I tried to find a good one, but it wasn't a lot of good years in Philly, unfortunately, as a giant Philly fan. But what can you do? Now, the Reds ended up beating us this day 22-3. to Okay, not, that's already bad enough. Uh, they obviously went for the two-point conversion. The Reds hit nine home runs. Now, this is, if I was trying to do play-by-play, -play, which I really don't do, it would have sounded like something this, like this. Glanville goes back to center field wall. He looks up. It's gone. Now, unfortunately... That was said nine times. Glanville goes back to the wall. He looks up. It's gone. Like, I, I need my own punchline. I don't have my thing like Harry Carey had it. But I'm telling you, I was kind of getting nauseous just going back to the wall and looking up and just in futility. And everybody seemed to hit a home run. Now, the Reds had 19 hits, nine of which were home runs, which is already ridiculous. Ed Taubenzi had two homers, four hits, and five RBIs. And, of course, in honor of John Shambi, he was a triple shy of the cycle. So this is a memorable game that I tried to erase from my memory. So uh, we'll see if there's going to be anything bigger than 24 runs and 32 total, but uh, baseball is only wild and wacky because this is what Jason Stark and I love. So Starkville, only Starkville are going to capture these moments. Uh, so, so on a, also, uh, uh, let me transition from there, I guess I'll say, <laughs> okay. Now, one thing that was also memorable in a, in a way that has been gripping our country is that in the Padres national game as part of that series, there was a shooting outside the stadium. And so although we, we know we're all worried about these type of moments and, and that are, we've been grappling with this for some time, what was so powerful about it is to hear the stories of heroism by the players. And, and you saw Jace Tingler, you saw... Coaches, managers, Dave Martinez embraced the fans. And the moment where we heard about uh, uh, Fernando Tastis Jr. and Will Myers, uh, Manny Machado, just players from the Padres opening the gates up to make sure the players, the fans were safe. 
and bringing their families in and also letting the fans be in the dugout. Uh, so, you know, you realize that we've been in a world of pandemic and there's a lot of stress and you know that there's a lot of frustration. Obviously, in these cases, there's a lot of anger that's been taken out in this way. And baseball playing this kind of role gives me a certain warmth, a certain feeling of hope because the game has this power to just give us that quick moment of rem- of reminder that, you know, our humanity is central, that we're all trying to come together and that we can pick each other up in tough times. So just something what seemed to be simple as Machado running and opening the gate, letting some fans in, it seems like something that should not be surprising. But then when you see players step it up in a moment of crisis where there's high stress environment and they think about the family of baseball first before they think of you and even their own self, uh, even themselves, then we are in a good place when we have that. So uh, we're dealing with this all together. And I, I think that baseball had a shining moment in that even in something that was really painful and tragic to be able to stand. And it's the moment that we've been missing for so long, not being in the stadium and just being without the opportunity to get together and share. So they're sometimes unfortunately bad with that, but how the players in the game responded showed something that was very positive. So hopefully we can continue to move forward and, and build on something of what was a moment of heroism by these players and, and quick thinking and a reminder that we're all in this together. You can join The Athletic right now for just $3.99 per month. Just go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. Trivia will be back next week. If you want to join the show, get us your question by emailing us at starkville at theathletic.com. You can also reach us on Twitter using the hashtag StarkvilleQS, StarkvilleQS. Or, of course, at Doug Glanville directly, D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. And my absent colleague, at Jason Stark, J-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T. Coming up on Thursday on the Athletic Baseball Show, it's Hunter Pence and Grant Brisby. And then on Friday, it's Derek Van Riper and Keith Law. Thanks so much to Susan Waldman for joining us with her insights. And Jason Stark will be back next week to join us again on Starkville.